Welcome to episode 13 of the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown podcast, the podcast where we discuss and examine the 75 greatest Marvel stories as chosen by Marvel readers and published by Marvel Comics itself. The countdown continues every Wednesday until June 1st, 2016. Well, today, John M. Wilson is back, and the two of us are going to be discussing Captain America Comics number one with credited creators Joe Simon and Jack Kirby as well as other uncredited creators on later stories. Original cover date was March 1941, and the release date was on or around December 20th, 1940. And as we said in the episode number, it comes in at number 13 in the countdown. So, welcome back, John. Lucky number 13. Yeah, Captain America Comics number one, which, you know, important issue. Uh, Making an important character with an important movie coming out around the time that the episode hits. And yeah, looking forward to this discussion here, because this is one of my favorite, favorite characters from Marvel. Yeah, and this is a classic. He's one of the few Golden Age characters that is still around today. Right. I think we talked about this at some length back, way back in the day, when we did Marvel Comics number one, and how that, I think, had five or six different features, and only two of them, the Submariner and the Human Torch, had any staying power, and, you know... For various reasons, they're kind of minor characters in modern-day Marvel, but for Captain America, that's not true. Once he was brought back in the Silver Age, he was brought back in a big way and has been a major player on the Marvel field ever since then, only getting bigger in the last 10 or 15 years with renewed interest and the uh, Winter Soldier storyline and then the films to help, uh, help support him. So Captain America's big deal. And uh, this is where he starts. Oh, you don't think this made the list because of Tuck Caveboy? You know, it was not even as good as Kazar. <laughs> it's like another Tarzan ripoff. And, and we didn't need the first one. And we definitely didn't need the second one. <laughs> well, maybe that's spilling our hand a little bit. <laughs> yeah. We might as well run through a quick synopsis of what's in this issue. Because this is a, a multi-issue piece. So using the... Very brief plot synopses that I did for my Collectors.com database entry. The first story is titled Meet Captain America. In an effort to turn the tide of war, Steve Rogers volunteers for an experiment that transforms him into Captain America, Sentinel of Liberty. Unfortunately, Nazi spies prevent the experiment from ever being duplicated. The second story has no title. Omar and Sando are mental performers with an incredible knack for predicting disasters about to befall the U.S., Correctly suspecting that they are not psychic, but are in league with saboteurs, Captain America and Bucky go check out the performance. The third one, Captain America and the Soldier's Soup, is a prose piece, in which Captain America is woken up by the lack of the Sentry's footfalls, only to find saboteurs trying to poison his entire unit. The fourth is The Chessboard of Death, where a Nazi agent is planning out his moves in the war like pieces on a chessboard, and successfully assassinates many of America's best strategists, until Captain America and Bucky stop him. Then we have The Riddle of the Red Skull. A Nazi agent in the Red Skull has been systematically killing American personnel and is ultimately revealed to be American industrialist George Maxson. And then these last two stories do not feature Captain America whatsoever. Murder Limited features the Hurricane, a descendant of Thor and the Greek gods combined, who is working to stop Pluto's evil plots on Earth. And then finally, Stories from the Dark Ages... Tuck Caveboy's origin is relayed by Ack, and then Tuck repeats it to a character named Tenier when they first meet. So that's really the whole thing is here's a flashback of the origin and nothing really new in that story. 
So that is the issue in a nutshell. Well, um, the, the origin story for Captain America is very bare bones, very basic. It's eight pages, I believe, as opposed to Spider-Man, who got a whole 11 pages. And it's very quick. We know nothing about Steve Rogers in this story. The first time we show up is when he's about to get injected by, you know, stuff from Dr. Reinstein, which is not Dr. Einstein, even though it sounds like it could be. Or Erskine. Or Erskine, yeah, as it later retcons put him on. He gets injected, he gets bigger, he saves, well, doesn't save, but saves the day after Reinstein is shot by a saboteur, and he's found changing clothes by Bucky, whom he then takes on as a sidekick, because that's healthy. But it, it's very straightforward. It's very fun, though. It's a really great little short story, and definitely would tie into the hyper-patriotism of American youth and almost youth in 19... 19- you know, late 1940. Yeah, because keep in mind, this is about a year before Pearl Harbor. So the World War II is going on, but the United States is not yet involved in any official capacity. Right. The most we're doing is sending people overseas to assist the British effort as, you know, under their command. And some of that is official orders. There's a, you know, some of that that's unofficial top secret operations. But yeah, we are not in the war. That whether or not we're going to join the war is a huge political hot button because, and you can find if you read other comics of the day, the talk of people in comics will make weapons and scientists will make ideas. And they say, I was going to save it in the event of a defensive war. You know, so the idea that we would only enter the war if it basically, if it entered us, then that's what we would do. And so the fact that we did not go in until Pearl Harbor was attacked. Was uh, was a political position at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I was actually I was surprised by a couple of things because I know I have read this, but it wasn't recently enough, and I wasn't reading it sort of analytically as I was this time. And I was surprised at the fact that by the time we meet Steve Rogers, he is in the experimenting room and about to get injected. Mm-hmm. He's not our point of view character. It's actually other government agents who are learning about the experiment who are coming in as the point of view characters. So it's. John said, we don't see any of Steve Rogers' motivations for signing up in any of this. He's just already there, and they turn him into Captain America. And the events surrounding this day would be expanded upon and given background to multiple, multiple times over the next, you know, 75 years. But really, this story as it stands remains unchanged, remains the kernel. There are a few nuances For instance, did Steve Rogers intend to kill that guy? Did he not? Was it intentional? Was it an accident? Um, Those nuances get played with. I think the only real blatant contradiction that that is brought along is that Reinstein says that just earlier that day, Steve Rogers had volunteered for army service and was refused because of his unfit condition. And... Turns out that's not entirely the case. They have had him under wraps and in preparation for this event for a little while before this experiment happens. Yeah. But other than that, the story is basically unchanged. It'll get retold almost exactly beat for beat. And whenever Rogers is brought back and tells a suspense, I believe that's number 63 that does the origin retelling. But even then they change a few things. They, uh, they change Reinstein to Erskine, and 
They changed the woman involved in the story to Agent 13, which, you know, is a a label they would then later use for Steve Rogers' girlfriend. But aside from those initial changes that get unchanged later on, the story's pretty much the way it's going to always be. Yeah, very much so, at least for that origin story. Uh, The Omar and Sando story, as, yeah... (laughs) That one is one that's, it feels a little out of place because I think of Captain America as the, you know, go, go, rah, rah, sentinel of our shores is the way they describe him on the cover. Mm -hmm. And this is almost a non-military operation. He and Bucky are just hanging out stateside when they decide to check this out. Yeah. And, and, and the stories that Captain America, the genre that Captain America fit into during the actual timely era during, not talking about invaders comics and other comics that took place during world war ii but actual stories published during world war ii his genre often ventured toward the macabre that it was just captain america was a vehicle to tell a spooky or monstery story with it's a bit odd because you would expect it to be much more war motivated much more like a sergeant fury comic with captain america and bucky but he actually very rarely does blatant military actions. And this is a good example mm-hmm. of how it's just not. There's just something weird going on, and he's going to explore because Captain America can do it. Yeah, and you compare that to the next three stories, which are all, you know, some form of military operation. So the soldier soup is, you know, they're stationed, I believe they're stationed in Argentina, or it was not a World War II placement, but, you know, it was a military placement overseas or out of the country. And then the next two are two different Nazi agents sabotaging what's going on in America. And then, of course, we have Murder Limited and the Tuck Cave Boy, which we mentioned for completeness because this made the list just listed as Captain America Comics number one and not a particular story from within it. The, the last two stories, I don't. I was just going to say, we don't plan to, to go through the hurricane and Tuck in really any greater detail than we have, because even though they're included in this issue, I don't believe that they influenced people's choices to put this issue on the list. No, although interestingly, they would both be handled by continuity later on. Hurricane, a.k.a. Mike Curie, who is a very obvious Hermes Mercury riff, would be retconned as being the same character who appeared a few months earlier in Red Raven comics as Mercury, and is in fact the inhuman, no, 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 sorry, the eternal, named Makari from 1976's Eternals series. So Jack Kirby used this character that he had drawn, you know, what would that have been at the time? 35 years earlier? And uh, Tuck the Cave Boy, his story says that he's from Adelan, the home of the, the land of the gods or whatever. And although the, ti- the placement in time is weird because this says it's 50,000 years ago, and the Inhumans only date back to 25,000 years ago, it is often thought that he has some sort of connection to the Inhumans, although it's never really explored in depth. It is just kind of an example of weird things that people will later choose to make part of continuity. But you're right. Neither one of them factored into why Captain America Comics number one was chosen for number 13. No. No, I think that really boils down to the Meet Captain America story. And you know, even though we've got a chessboard of death, I would think the only other story here that contributes might be the Riddle of the Red Skull. Yeah. Yeah, the Red Skull's a big deal. The chessboard of death is just amazingly kooky and hilarious to read. Yeah, it's one of those ones where, you know, the chessboard is representative of the strategy, but the moves he's making, it's just 
I'm going to capture that piece. I'm going to capture that piece as representative of assassinating his competition. Right. He moves them around and, and like taking them off the board is the big thing that he's going to die. But like, you know, first he had to put them on the board. The gate, the board does not start out with the Cats America and Bucky characters on it, but eventually it does have them. And he's like, now I'm going to take them off the board because they will die. And there's the moment where Cats in America comes in and he sees the room and he sees the chessboard. And he's like, oh my gosh, that's so adorable. You have little chess pieces of everybody. And he laughs at the guy and it's really great. It's, 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 a, it's a weird story, but it, the fact that Cats in America himself thinks this is weird and kooky and doesn't take the guy seriously adds to the humor and weirdness of it. It's, it's, it's funny. Yeah, it is. It's enjoyable. And then as just the riddle of the Red Skull, we get the first introduction of a Nazi agent named the Red Skull, who is not Johann Schmidt. So this one, as we said, is industrialist George Maxson. And he dies at the end. But then when Red Skull shows up again, I think in issue three, this guy got up. So George Maxson has at least one more story to him. I think if it weren't for later retcons, this could totally be understood to all be one character from the seven, uh, from, from the World War II era, uh, just going under a moniker of George Maxson to, I don't know, elude suspicion or something. But later versions or treatments of the Red Skull's history relegate this first Red Skull to being an underling of the real Red Skull. But if you're reading through the 1940s comics, Red Skull dies at the end of almost every single issue that he appears in. So the fact that, you know, he actually did die in one of those deaths is not really ever brought attention to. But he's a, he's, he's, he's a fun character. He, um, he stares at you and says, look in my eyes, the look of death. Look at death. Gaze upon death. While he nicks you with some poison. Yeah. He's trying to be the, this scary... You know, and I don't know how exactly this is supposed to work because he's got this reputation for having the look of death, but there's never witnesses. He finds people alone, gives them this look of death, which is timed with, as John said, you know, secretly injecting you with something, and then people die and he takes off. So, you know, they learn that there's a Red Skull killing them with no witnesses and no one sees the look of death and yet they're scared of it. So maybe he threatens people with it. He's like, I'll, I'll give you my gaze of death if you don't, you know. Goose step over there, whatever. And uh, so the word got around. I don't know. I don't know. Thinking a little bit too hard about the logic of these things is A, very fun and very appropriate for podcasting, but also B, sometimes an exercise in futility. <laughs> yeah. The creative team on this book, Joe Simon and Jack Kirby, they create the character here and they stay with him for almost exactly one year, putting out 10 issues of Cats America comics and a story for, I want to say, All Winners Comics, I think, is the one that starts up. Uh, the first issue or two of that comes out before Captain America Comics 10. So they make stories for those. They do not contribute beyond the concept idea for Young Allies, which is the offshoot comic that features Bucky and Toro and a bunch of rapscallions modeled after the Little Rascals. Maybe. I say all that to say that once Joe Simon and Jack Kirby do this, and they leave, they will then go over to DC, or National, and they will make the Guardian, who's a guy with a shield, with a young bunch of rapscallion partners called the Newsboy Legion, that are sort of a play off of the Young Allies, minus the direct ideas of Bucky and Toro. So it's, it's, it's interesting how 
character ideas in one place can be carried over to character ideas in another place. And as a Newsboy Legion, they really worked and really took off and became very, very popular and were revived in the 70s and revived again post-crisis. But The Young Allies, Bucky and Toro, was a really racist comic, very poorly handled with issues like nationalistic um, identity and ethnic identity, and it died and was never brought back in its form, although the title was used again later. Okay. Well, if it's not racist, maybe that's a good thing. <laughs> it's probably a good thing, but you know, it's just it's just it's just weird. It's it's bad, but it's weird. Yeah. Unfortunately that was part of the era and a sign in the times. So how did you first get exposed to this issue? You know, when I was reading this, I had this idea and story all prepared in my head. And now that I'm supposed to tell you you know, it's really hard actually for me to recall when I read this particular issue because I feel like I read some of it way back in the day when I was a kid, but I don't know what I would have owned back then that would have had this in it. So it could have been, you know, it, when I got back into comics as an adult in 2008. I know I've read this issue many times and several times, but I honestly don't remember. And maybe, maybe I read a reprint of the origin story somewhere because. That picture that Joe Simon drew of Captain America that's on the front page of the issue with him standing there sort of waving at the camera. I remember, I remember having a reaction to that image going, wow, that's sort of an off-looking image. And I remember having that as a young reader, but I don't remember when I actually read the comics, so I don't have a story for you there. Okay. Yeah, for me, this I believe I read this for the first time on Marvel Digital Unlimited when I was reading all my comics in chronological order. So I cataloged everything on Unlimited as part of my database and just ran through them in order and... This came up fairly early on. I will say this for, since you mentioned reading all those early issues in chronological order, when you read early timely, it is very quick to see who the standouts are, i.e. Submariner, the Human Torch, to a lesser extent, the Angel, and Electro. When Captain America Comics comes on the scene, it is immediately a star in the pantheon of what Timely was putting out. It is head and shoulders above anything else they were doing, except maybe Submariner and Human Torch. Now, my particular opinion of the stories is that they dwindle over time, and after, especially after Kirby and Simon leave. But, but yeah, when this hit in 1940, December, it was, it was a big deal as far as quality goes compared to other comics. So I imagine if you were reading other things in Chronological Run, if you would have had access to like Marvel Comics and Marvel Mystery Comics... It was probably mm -hmm. a um, an eye-opening experience. It was. It was definitely a lot more consistent throughout because it had so many Captain America portions. Up to this point, most of what I was reading, you know, on the DC side, you had your Superman and Batman comics, which were, you know, many stories on the same topic or same theme, but already farmed out to multiple creative teams writing and drawing under ghosted names. So they were just coming out of, you know, the Siegel and Schuster studio or the Bob Kane studio or... You know, particularly in Batman, Bob Kane was getting credit for a lot of things he didn't do. <laughs> yeah, maybe just a bit. But this really stood out because, you know, five out of seven stories are by the original creative team. So they were inspired to do something with this guy. We do see changes in the character over the years. I believe this issue is the only one where he uses the triangular shield. That's correct. So the next issue he appears in, he switched to that familiar circular shield. And that was due to... uh threats of litigation from Archie comics because his shield looked a heck of a lot like the front chest plate of their character, the shield. Okay. 
Yeah, I wasn't aware of why they changed it, but it has helped the character tremendously that they did. Yeah, I think that the, the you know, for lack of a better word, the frisbee shield just adds to the dynamic nature of the character. Because sure, you can you can punch some people and slug them with that sh- you know that that triangular shield, but with the with the circular design, the shield slinging aspect of Cats in America, which actually didn't really become a thing until the '60s revival, but that just adds so much dynamic quality to the characters' fight scenes. Oh yeah. I mean, I think at this point we haven't explicitly spelled it out, but the significance and the impact of the story on the industry are fairly clear. A lot of specific continuity points may not be touched on regularly aside from the origin itself, but this is the origin and first appearance of Captain America. And he has been, well, A-list particularly since that issue of the Avengers we've already discussed, Avengers number four, where he came back as a full member of the team. And it's odd that that happened so late, you know, relatively in in the in the early Silver Age, you know, he had brought Namor back as a Fantastic Four supporting character. He had brought the Human Torch back in name and power set, if not as a character, but he, he had certainly revisited that concept. I, I wonder why they didn't bring Captain America back if it was a thing that the war is over. So why, what use would they have for him again? Yeah, it may also be because they tried to bring Captain America and Bucky back in the 1950s during the Korean War, but they were coming back with a very different mentality and mindset. And they were, by reputation, I'm saying this, I haven't actually read the comics from the 1950s. It sounds like the take was different enough that audiences didn't accept it because it didn't feel like the characters that they were reading 10 years prior. And that issue went by the wayside and was eventually folded into continuity as two completely different people, which is why they felt so different, who were, you know, brainwashed, with or without their own psychology trying to help them into believing they were the original Captain America and Bucky, even though they were not. Right. And, and that revival went along with a Submariner and Human Torch revival, but all of that was, was very short-lived and I think only lasted for about six months. But yeah, when, once they did bring him back in the Avengers, eventually he got a solo strip in Tales of Suspense. Eventually he got his own, you know, whenever they split Tales of Suspense up into Captain America and Iron Man, Captain America kept that numbering. And so it's kind of funny because this issue is Captain America Comics number one. There is no Captain America number one until the late 90s with the Heroes Reborn storyline. So a little, little quirk of comics there. Also, another quirk of comics is this is actually Captain America Comics volume two, number one. I have no idea what volume one was, if there's an Ashcan creation or what. But all throughout this run in the index, they say it's volume two. So it's, you know, it is what it is. Yeah, an ash can is the most likely option for that. And for those at home who don't know what ash cans are, they were smaller sized comics that would fit in an ash can, distributed cheaply as more promotional and advertising materials. So instead of being these 64-page giant comics, it would just be one or two stories and more like a 16-pager to say, hey, check this out, now go buy the real product. I think the, the best comparison these days would be the independent comics who put the first issues free on Comixology to try and get you in for the, you know, the full story or the full series. It's also a nice way to secure copyright. You can grab a name and publish a thing without it really being the thing you're ready to publish, but it it, it lands the name under your umbrella. The one thing we haven't really mentioned in this this comic yet is Bucky. I mentioned in passing in relation to Young Allies, but Mm -hmm. Bucky's a really big deal in comics in the last decade because he's actually alive again. And he has his, you know, the Winter Soldier film, and he's part of the Civil War film, and 
but I've always wondered about the treatment of Bucky in these early comics, and I'm trying to figure out why he's drawn so young-looking. Because even in the context of the story, he's a 14 or 16-year-old kid. So why would they draw him so young? And the only explanation I'd be able to come up with is that, well, 14 or 16-year-old is, is still a kid and is not yet an adult. Even though he's, you know, post-pubescent and growing, we're still going to draw him like a little boy. Yeah, and it may also be a choice to deliberately keep him similar to Robin. I don't remember the exact publication schedule of the first issue of Robin. I believe that was earlier in 1940. Yeah, because he's a character find of 1940. So I want to say March of 1940, but that might be a little bit early. But he was definitely around by this point. In fact, Robin and Bucky really are the two characters who set up the whole teen sidekick thing. Teen characters were not considered viable before Robin and Bucky, which is why Jerry Siegel's idea for Superboy as a young, mm-hmm. uh, capricious version of Superman was rejected by the editors. Yeah. Yeah. And while you were saying that, I did some checking online. And the cover date of Detective 38 that introduced Bucky is April 1940. Okay, so it would have hit stands around January, February. So yeah, early in the year, and this is right at the end of the year. So the better part of 12 months between them. Yeah, so it's it's entirely possible that the success of Robin and the Batman comics had an influence on Bucky's design in the Captain America comics. And Robin was written as younger than 14 or 16 at that time. Yeah, he was more like 8 or 10, I think, around these early era. Yeah, yeah so that could very well be why they're drawing Bucky so young. It's to have some of that Batman and Robin feel. He has a domino mask to match to match Robin. In fact, from the from the face up, you could probably have one artist who didn't know how to draw them differently. Yeah, you very much could. So I think at this point, we move into the portion of the podcast that I've so shamelessly stolen from Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, where we discuss any messages, morals, and meanings in this issue. There's the meaning and message of Captain America himself. There's the idea of somebody who is not good enough being helped by others to be good enough and who who is able to achieve what he wants to achieve. Not sure how to sum how to trim that down into a UC Timmy statement. But you know, Captain America has a lot of ideas and in and ideals within his concept. Whether or not they're brought out effectively in this one issue or extensively is is probably up for debate. Yeah, the other thing that really comes across here is Captain America is just more a model for what the ideal American was considered to be at this point, and that Nazis were evil. We're just getting into the propaganda era. Yeah, dirty, dirty Nazis. Yeah. But yeah, I can't think of anything else that's a clear message in these particular pages, because it was early enough in comics, or at least in the, the comic book era, that they weren't really looking at that. They were still trying to figure out how to take these things and this is in the point where they're just starting to realize that, hey, maybe these will be successful even outside of newspapers. Right. Yeah, the medium is only about two years. Well, no, the medium is older than that. Medium goes back to 1935. But what they can do with them is still something they're figuring out. Because the earliest 1935 comic books were just one-page strips or one-page collections of strips. And so making longer and longer stories was still a relatively new thing. But yeah, Captain America Comics number one. Mm-hmm. Starts a saga of a character who, you know, is still continuing today. I remember whenever the Get Corp DVD was put out, it went up to Captain America 25, his death story. So you could basically read, although it didn't include the Golden Age comics, did it? No, it didn't. It started in the Tales of Suspense era. But you could still read his entire Silver Age to modern story, the whole story of Steve Rogers 
from his revival and beginning of his solo series through his death in Captain America 25. And I thought that was kind of a neat way to end that collection. And uh, the character is still going strong. He has a movie coming out in 2016 and probably more after that. At the rate they're going, yeah, I think that's that's fairly likely. So I believe they'll keep doing it for at least as long as Chris Evans wants the role. And when he's done with that, well, we'll see. Maybe they pass it on to a legacy character and the Falcon gets a promotion in the films too. That would be cool. But as long as there are captains and as long as there's America, there will be Captain America. Yeah, and even then, Steve Rogers never seems to go away for long. You know, the next set of solicitations, at least at the time of this recording, includes Captain America Sam Wilson, I believe issue three, and Captain America Steve Rogers issue number one, coming out in May. So two Captains America. Yep. Good stuff. What about Bucky Cap? I guess he's not Cap anymore. Nope, but yeah, there, for a period there, there were two Captain Americas with that one too. Mostly just throughout Siege, that's when Steve Rogers picked up the gear again. Right. But Anyway, so I think we've already tipped our hand about why we feel it landed at this point in the rankings. It's the first appearance of Captain America. Yeah, and by your three standards of importance, meaning, and, and entertainment, certainly there is entertainment to be had here. This is a fun comic to read. It's kooky, it's dated, but it is very fun to read. However, it is the importance of Captain America that makes this be what it is. You, you would not go to this issue and have a hard time enjoying it, but you would also not vote it as one of Marvel's 75 greatest stories ever told, except for the fact that it is Captain America's first appearance. Yeah, I would agree with that. All right. So, John, thanks for joining us once again. Why don't you remind people where they can find your stuff? Well, you can find me at Avengers Inspirations, where I'm talking about Avengers characters, including Captain America eventually, at the Complete Marvel Reading Order website. You can find me at the Giant Superman podcast at giantsuperman.libson.com, talking about the Silver Age of Superman through the giant-sized annuals. And um, I actually uh, was involved with a very extensive retrospective of Project Rebirth. So Captain America was the topic of a special episode that David Weeder and I did over at Day's Daredevil Podcast. It's uh, called Captain America Spectacular. So that hit actually on the 75th anniversary of this issue, December 20th, 2015. And so I invite you to go listen to that. Um, it was uh, intended as a standalone episode, just a one-shot celebration of Captain America's 75th anniversary, but it also uh, might be used as a launching point for more spectacular-sized looks at Captain America's narrative and chunks of his history. But yeah, so go check that out. Okay. And in the meantime, those of you who are reading along at home with us can join us next week for Avengers number one, reprinted in Marvel Tales Annual number two. Marvel Masterworks Volume 4, The Avengers Volume 1 Hardcover, Marvel Milestone Edition, Avengers Number 1, Avengers Masterworks, The Trade Paperback, Son of Origins, The Trade Paperback, Essential Avengers Volume 1, 100 Greatest Marvels of All Time Number 2, Avengers Classic Number 1, Marvel Digital Unlimited, The Git Corp DVD ROMs, and on Comixology. In the meantime, please feel free to rate this and any other shows you listen to on iTunes and on Stitcher. It really does help the shows get noticed. Feel free to join our Facebook discussion forum for this podcast and share links to the episodes with friends who you feel may be interested. And finally, thank you for listening. Okay, I'm going to do the promo now. Really? Finally. Okay, let's do the promo. What do you mean, let's do the promo? I'm the one who has to do it. Well, can I always it then? Okay, okay, here we go. <clears throat> Iron Man. 
The Incredible Hulk, the Mighty Thor, the Captain America. Wow, being dramatic there, aren't we? Do, do you think it's too much? Should I back off? No, 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 you're fine. You, you're good. Okay. You've seen the Earth's mightiest heroes in the Avengers franchise of films. Now you can enjoy the stories that have inspired those films through the magic of comic podcasting. Magic of podcasting? You sure about that one? Well, yeah, because, you know, we're awesome. Like, magic. Only without actually seeing any magical things. Just go with it, go with it, go with it. Okay. Don't forget to tell them what we're actually doing on the show. Oh, oh yeah, okay. So join Lily Wilson, the awesomest teenage comics fan in the world, mm-hmm. as her father takes her through all the early comics that feature characters from the Avengers franchise of films. And some that aren't in those films yet, but will be. Because we started with the Ant-Man before we had a full film. Oh, well, yeah. And don't forget Spider-Man. He's not looking at Avenger, but he's there. Oh, okay. So um, maybe it should be that feature characters that have been, are currently, or will one day be in the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe. Better. And where should they go not see this magical podcasty goodness? New episodes can be found... Fa- <coughs> do I have to do the voice? Yes, you do. Okay, okay. New episodes can be found at the Complete Marvel Reading Order website, cmro.travis-starns.com, and clicking under the Podcasts tab. Or on iTunes by searching Complete Marvel Reading Order, or just search for the name of the show itself. Um, Dad? Don't you think we should actually say the name of our show? Oh. Yeah! Avengers! Inspirations! Podcast! Listen and stuff. Yeah, good job, Dad. Thank you.